Hello everyone, welcome back to the finals countdown series which is brought to you by MedTalks. My name is Saho and I am a doctor working in the NHS. In today's talk we are still part of our endocrinology section and in the last few talks we've covered diabetes as a whole so we've looked at type 1, type 2, the acute complications and the chronic complications and how we monitor those complications. We've also touched on hypoglycemia, another complication of diabetes. But we finished with diabetes and now we're moving on to look at the thyroid gland. Woohoo! So, in today's talk, I'll be covering one type of one condition that's associated with the thyroid gland, and that is hyperthyroidism. But before we get on to talk about that, I'd just like to mention the sponsors of this episode. And this episode is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp, and that's help as in H E L P. And guys, for all of you listeners who are medical students and are feeling stressed with revision and upcoming exams, sometimes this can get quite overwhelming, and we have all been there. If you feel like things are getting a bit much for you, then BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and to help you. You can talk to a therapist in a completely private and online environment at your own convenience. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000-plus therapist network that gives you access to help that may not be available in your area. And all you have to do is just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then they can get you matched with the therapist in just under 48 hours. After this, you then schedule a secure video and phone session, plus you can exchange unlimited messages and everything you share is absolutely and completely confidential. You can also request a new therapist at no additional charge anytime. Join the 2 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. And just to make things even better, there is a special offer to all of you MedTalks listeners. You can get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp by entering the URL betterhelp.com slash medtalks. That's betterhelp.com slash medtalks. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. So, now let's look at the thyroid gland. The thyroid gland is an endocrine organ which is found in the neck and it's responsible for a number of things. It's responsible for regulating the body's metabolic rate through hormones, through the hormones it produces, the thyroid hormone. I'm going to briefly touch on the anatomy of the thyroid gland, its function, and then we'll look at the clinical relevance. So, it's a ductless alveolar gland found in the anterior neck, just below the laryngeal prominence, or the Adam's apple, or if you watch Friends, the Joey's apple. It is roughly butterfly-shaped, and it has two lobes that wrap around the trachea, and it connects in the middle via the isthmus. Usually, it's not palpable unless it's enlarged. In terms of its function, well, it's one of the main regulators we have of metabolism. T3 and T4 are the hormones, and they act via nuclear receptors in target tissues, which then initiates a variety of metabolic pathways. High levels of them can cause these processes to occur faster and more frequently. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The metabolic process that, processes that are increased by thyroid hormones include the basal metabolic rate, gluconeogenesis, so that's production of new glucose, glycogenolysis, which is the breakdown of glycogen to release glucose, protein synthesis, so the production of protein, lipogenesis, the production of fatty tissue, and thermogenesis, which is the regulation of our body temperature. 
Now hyperthyroidism, hyper, is an overactivity of the thyroid gland, which leads to a number of different signs and symptoms which we will touch on shortly. It can be classified as primary or secondary. Primary hypothyroidism is essentially where the pathology is within the thyroid gland. The thyroid gland is the primary issue. Secondary hyperthyroidism is the term that's used when the thyroid gland is stimulated by excessive thyroid stimulating hormone within the circulation. So the thyroid gland is this is the hypothyroidism is secondary to something else, not within the thyroid gland. So as I said, it's located within the neck. It's stimulated and controlled by thyroid stimulating hormone which is released from the anterior pituitary gland. Thyroid stimulating hormone is released by thyrotropin releasing hormone from the hypothalamus and the thyroid gland in response to TSH then produces thyroxine T4 and triiodothyronine T3 but mostly it produces T4 than the T3. T4 is inactive and actually needs to be converted into T3 which occurs within our peripheral tissues and organs such as the liver and kidney and most of our thyroid hormones, so T3 and T4, within our circulation is bound to a protein, mainly thyroglobulin, and it's the only free, only the free thyroid hormone that is active. Free thyroid hormones in the circulation then act negatively, and that's the negative feedback loop, on the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland, which then releases, reduces the release of TRH and TSH. All right, let's move on to talk about the epidemiology of hypothyroidism or overactive thyroid gland or otherwise called thyrotoxicosis. So in Europe, thyrotoxicosis affects about 1 in 2,000 people annually and it still tends to be underdiagnosed. It's shown that in people over 65 years old, undiagnosed hypothyroidism occurs in 0.3% of people and around 2% of people aged over 65 years have subclinical hypothyroidism and I'll talk about what subclinical is shortly. The most common cause of thyrotoxicosis or hypothyroidism is called Graves' disease. And it was called this because of an Irish doctor called Robert James Graves, who described a case of goiter with exophthalmos in 1835. And this basically has an autoimmune basis. So it's an autoimmune disease, which means our body starts attacking itself, and it's mediated by antibodies that stimulate the TSH receptor. This leads to an increased secretion of thyroid hormones and hyperplasia of thyroid follicular cells which leads to hyperthyroidism and a diffuse goiter. Goiter is basically enlargement of the thyroid gland. Now there are some features of Graves that are specifically for, for Graves and they are the eye changes. So patients with Graves disease can present with something called exophthalma, also known as proptosis, is the medical term for a bulging or protruding eyeball or eyeballs and most often caused by thyroid eye disease which is seen in Graves disease. Patients with grave disease may also have ophthalmoplegia, and this is called extraocular muscle palsy. So you get paralysis of the extraocular muscles that control movements of the eye. And this usually involves the third ocular nerve, so the third cranial nerve, so the ocular motor, the fourth trochlea, sixth abducens, and double vision is a characteristic symptom of all three of these cases. In Graves' disease, there is diffuse and moderate enlargement of the thyroid gland, which will feel firm on palpation. Some patients have something called pretibial myxedema or thyroid dermopathy. This presents itself as a waxy, discoloured induration of the skin, and it's classically described as having a so-called peau d'orange or an orange peel appearance on the anterior aspect of the lower legs, spreading to the dorsum of the feet, 
or as a non-localized, non-pitting edema of the skin in the same areas. Patients with Graves may also have a, a personal or family history of autoimmune disease, which could be Graves or it could be other autoimmune conditions. Another cause of hypothyroidism or thyrotoxicosis is toxic nodular goiter. This is the presence of a multi-nodular goiter without the specific features that are seen in Graves' disease, such as the eye features. So this suggests toxic nodular goiter, and it's common in the elderly. Another cause is a solitary thyroid nodule, which is a palpable toxic adenoma. There's decurvane's thyroiditis, thyroiditis, which is a transient hypothyroidism, usually results from a viral infection, and it can present with features of hypothyroidism with pyrexia and pain in the neck. Self-medication, so over-the-counter iodine supplements and energy-boosting preparations which contain thyroid hormones can also lead to hyperthyroidism. A follicular carcinoma of the thyroid gland can lead to hypothyroidism. Medications such as amiodarone, lithium and exogenous iodine, they can lead to hypothyroidism. Now let's talk about the signs and symptoms of hyperthyroidism or thyrotoxicosis. So because the thyroid hormones affect pretty much every body system, the signs and symptoms are pretty widespread. So firstly, we'll look at the weight. So patients often experience weight loss despite having an increased appetite. They become quite irritable. They may experience weakness and fatigue. They may have diet, diarrhea and possibly steatorrhea. Sweating, they may experience tremors. Mental illnesses, which can raise from anxiety to psychosis. They have a characteristic heat intolerance, a loss of libido, and they in terms of their, um, they also may experience oligomenorrhea or amenorrhea, so that's a, a cessation of periods, or irregular and inconsistent menstrual blood flow in, during periods. In terms of signs that patients may present with, palmar erythema, sweaty and warm palms, they have a fine tremor, tachycardia, this could be atrial fibrillation, they may have hair thinning or diffuse alopecia, brisk reflexes, a goiter which can be palpated in the neck, urticaria and pruritus. Patients may have proximal myopathy with muscle weakness and wasting. Gynecomastia, they may have a lid lag and this can be present in any cause of hypothyroidism. And lid lag is basically a delay in moving the eyelid down as the eye moves down. So, the signs and symptoms are often very varied. In some patients, they're very mild, but other patients, they may have a lot more of these signs and symptoms. Patients with Graves' disease have the eye signs that I mentioned previously. Okay, so now let's move on to talk about how we're going to investigate and diagnose somebody with hyperthyroidism. So the most important tests that we're going to do are blood tests, and those are the thyroid function tests. Serum TSH can exclude a primary thyrotoxicosis. If the serum TSH level is high, then you know that it's a secondary, secondary hypothyroidism because if it was primary, then the serum TSH would be low because it's being suppressed by the thyroid hormones through this negative feedback loop. The diagnosis should be confirmed with free T4 levels. So if you've got a high TSH and a high T4, then you know it's a secondary hypothyroidism. If you've got a high T4 and a low TSH, then you know you've got a primary hypothyroidism or a primary thyrotoxicosis. If TSH is suppressed but the free T4 levels are normal, then you need a free T3 level because T3 toxicosis can occur in about 5% of patients. The next thing we need to look at is the autoantibodies, and these are most commonly seen in Graves' disease. So there's the antimicrosomal antibodies against thyroid peroxidase. 
which is located within the thyroid gland and it's heavily involved in thyroid hormone biosynthesis. So, thyroid peroxidase antibodies are present in about 75% of cases of Graves hypothyroidism and it can help us differentiate autoimmune disease from a toxic nodular hypothyroidism. Other antibodies we look for are anti-thyroglobulin antibodies and TSH receptor antibodies are commonly present in Graves' disease. They're shown to have a sensitivity of 98% and a specificity of 99%. Moving away from blood tests, we can do some imaging, so a thyroid ultrasound scan and thyroid uptake scans to locate hot and cold spots. Hot spots are overactivity, cold spots are where there's no activity. Inflammatory markers are also important, for example, for de Kervain's thyroiditis, where patients have had a recent viral infection, then you need to look at the CRP and you can even look at the ESR, and these will often be raised. Hey guys, just a quick one. If you, like me, are iPad lovers and spend all of your t productive time on your iPads making notes for exams or making notes for anything else, then I cannot recommend enough the paper-like screen protector. The number of times I've scratched my unprotected iPad screen after using different styluses or styli, but since having the paper-like screen protector, it's kept my screen extremely well shielded. Its NanoDot surface technology provides a better tactile feel, increased stroke friction and minimal light diffraction so that making art and taking notes on an iPad feels as natural as writing on paper. Made for the iPad and Apple Pencil, Paperlite delivers the unforgettable feeling of real paper into your digital workspace. To find out more about this wonderful creation, you can just head on over to their website by searching paperlike.com slash medtalks and I will leave this link in the episode description so you can have a look after you've listened to the episode and if you are interested in purchasing a paper like screen protector then please do enter the code medtalks at the checkout page and again i will leave that all in the episode description okay back to the episode okay now let's move on to the management so all patients who have new onset thyrotoxicosis should be referred for assessment in secondary care to establish the cause and then agree on a management plan. If we need rapid symptom control while waiting for thyroid function to normalize, we can use beta blockers. If patients are intolerant of beta blockers, then calcium channel blockers can be used. And there are three main types of definitive treatment that we have available to us. There's antithyroid drugs. So that's carbimazole or propylthiouracil. These medications act quickly and they inhibit the production of thyroid hormones, but it may take about two to three weeks for the actual full benefit to become apparent. Now, propylthiouracil have some side effects. It's known to cause severe liver failure, especially in children, and it should only be reserved for use in pregnancy and for a thyrotoxic storm, which I'll talk about later. So there are two methods that we can use to treat hypothyroid patients, and that's the block and replace, where we give antithyroid drugs alongside thyroxine replacement, so that's the thyroid hormone replacement, and dose titration, where we only use the antithyroid drugs, and the doses are adjust adjusted to achieve normalization of thyroid hormone production. Both types of methods have been shown to be equally effective according to meta-analyses and systematic reviews, and the dose titration method was associated with a lower rate of side effects. Most patients who have hypothyroid Graves' disease are rendered euthyroid, so that's normal thyroid function, by about four to eight weeks of treatment with carbimazole at about 20 to 40 milligrams per day. The TFTs or the thyroid function tests need to be repeated every six weeks and the dose needs to be altered according to the T4 level. The TSH may remain suppressed for months despite the T4 coming into normal range and so it's an unreliable use to assess for a response. 
Once the patient becomes euthyroid, so that's when they have a normal thyroid function, the dose of carbimazole is then reduced until the patient's on the lowest amount necessary to maintain that T4 and T3 within normal range. And in terms of remission, this is usually achieved at 18 to 24 months, after which attempts can be made to stop any of these antithyroid drugs. In terms of minor side effects, these can include nausea and a bitter taste after taking the medication. But one thing that patients have to have to be warned about is to come for a blood test if they start to develop a sore throat or a fever because antithyroid drugs such as carbimazole can cause bone marrow suppression. This is seen in less than 0.5% of patients. <clears throat> patients who've got relapsed Graves' disease or if they have poor compliance to medication or patients with toxic nodular hypothyroidism, then radioiodine, so radioactive iodine, is a treatment of choice. And it's actually given to patients as a drink taken up by the thyroid gland and it leads to the destruction of the gland but it can take about three to four months to have its full effect. What are the advantages? Well it's relatively inexpensive and it's a definitive method for treating hypothyroidism. Antithyroid drugs should be stopped five to seven days before treatment with radioactive iodine because continue, continuous use reduces the thyroid iodide uptake and retention which therefore reduces the cure rates. It can't be given to any person who's pregnant or any breastfeeding females and females should be advised not to get pregnant for at least three to six months after radioactive iodine. Also, it can worsen eye disease in Graves' thyrotoxicosis, and this is more marked in smokers. The patient needs to be told that the radioactive iodine is cleared by the urine and therefore can be passed on. So it's usually advised to avoid close contact with children and pregnant women for about three weeks. And hypothyroidism is a potential complication. The other method for treatment is surgery. This is very infrequently used in the treatment of thyrotoxicosis. So, patients who are candidates for surgery, they need to be returned to the euthyroid state with antithyroid drugs such as carbimazole before surgery to avoid a thyroid storm. The TSH and the free T4 should be measured at two to six months, two and six months after surgery, and then the TSH once a year for adults, children, and young people who have had a hemithyroidectomy. Other surgical procedures are subtotal or a near-total thyroidectomy, which can achieve a 98% cure rate, and this is indicated if there's a suboptimal response to antithyroid medication or to radioiodine, particularly in patients who are pregnant or who have Graves' eye disease. Complications can be rare, but they can include hemorrhage, hypoparathyroidism, because the parathyroid glands are connected to the thyroid gland, and so if you take out the thyroid gland, you may risk taking out the parathyroid glands, and this can lead to low levels of parathyroid hormone. Also vocal cord paralysis because of the actual anatomy and where the thyroid gland is located in the neck. Those who have surgery need to have regular follow-ups for a number of years because they can develop hypothyroidism. So toxic adenomas or toxic multinodular goiter which is resistant to conservative treatment or is causing compression symptoms are best treated with surgical excision. If somebody has decurvian thyroiditis, so a acute thyroiditis, which this is transient and resolves spontaneously, so using antithyroid drugs will not have any benefit and should therefore be avoided. Okay, now just to summarize, we're going to look at how we approach a patient that has suspected hypothyroidism. So firstly, we need to make the diagnosis through the presence of signs and symptoms and then the clinical history. Thyroid function tests, so we need to await the results before we actually initiate therapy if possible. We, all, we then need to decide whether a patient needs urgent admission or if they can be managed as an outpatient. Those who need urgent admission are ones where they are unwell or unable to manage at home. They have tachycardia, but mainly atrial fibrillation or evidence of cardiac failure. 
they are dehydrated, for example, because of severe diarrhea, or they have any evidence of psychosis. If a patient can be managed in the community, then they need to be educated on the nature of the illness and the management plan. Carbimazole should be started and patients should be, it's imperative that patients are told to seek urgent help if they develop a sore throat or a rash. And a, a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker can be started to control symptoms which are driven by the high levels of thyroid gland and causing excessive stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system. And for example, atenolol or verapamil. Thyroid function tests need to need to be monitored regularly and patients who have any symptoms of tracheal compression because of thyroid swelling need to be immediately referred to a thyroid surgeon. Patients who have thyroid swelling which is associated with a enlarging solitary nodule or they have previous neck irradiation or a family history of endocrine tumour or they have voice changes or hoarseness without any other obvious cause or neck glands or they're over 65 they need to be urgently referred to a thyroid surgeon. Patients can be referred routinely to outpatient endocrinology if they have if they don't have any of the previous mentioned features, but they have thyroid toxicosis that's confirmed by thyroid function tests. Now we will move on to secondary hyperthyroidism, and this is really rare. The pathology is at the level of the pituitary gland, where TSH, T3, and T4 are all very high. And to diagnose it, we use the thyrotropin releasing hormone stimulation tests. And causes include a TSH secreting pituitary adenoma. Thyroid hormone resistance syndrome, a HCG secreting tumor, and gestational thyrotoxicosis, so what, which occurs during pregnancy. In terms of subclinical hypothyroidism, as I mentioned previously, this occurs in about two percent of the elderly population. Is when the TSH, or the thyroid stimulating hormone, is suppressed below the normal reference range, but the free T4 and the free T3 concentrations are within normal reference range. And we need to look for secondary causes of a low TSH with normal thyroid hormone levels. So for example, a concomitant illness or medications such as steroids or amiodarone. The most common cause of true subclinical hyperthyroidism is toxic nodular goiter, especially in the elderly. If patients are offered treatment for subclinical hyperthyroidism, then radioiodine is usually the treatment of choice, especially if the cause of it is toxic nodular goiter. Alternatively, long-term carbimazole can be used. And if it's untreated, then the TSH should be checked every six months. Finally, we'll talk about the prognosis of hyperthyroidism, and it's characterized by relapses and remittances. Now, hypothyroidism can be a complication of surgical treatment and radioactive iodine, and so patients who have gone down this treatment path need to have close follow-ups with regular thyroid function tests. Spontaneous remission is seen as le in less than 10% and may not persist. In terms of other complications, there is an increased risk of death from osteoporotic fractures and also from cardiovascular disease and strokes. And this is independent of atrial fibrillation, which can be a known complication of hypothyroidism. Particularly, this is a these are complications if it's are not treated. Right guys, so that brings us to the end of this talk on hyperthyroidism. In today's episode, we've covered everything you need to know about hyperthyroidism. We've looked at what it is. We've looked at the thyroid gland anatomy and function and physiology. We've covered the signs and symptoms of hyperthyroidism, looked at how we diagnose it, mainly through blood tests, the thyroid function tests specifically. We've also touched on how we manage the different types of hyperthyroidism. And then we've looked at the complications and prognosis. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. As always, please remember to give us your feedback, messages on Instagram or email us with your questions and thoughts. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you so much for listening. And in the next talk, we'll be covering the other side 
of the thyroid conditions and that's hypothyroidism so stay tuned for that one and we look forward to bringing that to you thanks again for listening and goodbye